And I remember my husband, Kevin, and I were just sitting in the room waiting, and the doctors came in, and I don't get all emotional. It's so silly. They just said, you know, we had ASD, and we were actually relieved because we knew there was something more going on, but we didn't know what it was. As a parent, I think that naturally you want your kids to be perfect, and my boys are perfect, and getting the diagnosis and having the doctors explain the way his mind works for us was crucial. I'm Zakia Watley, and this is Breakthrough, a podcast from Boston Children's about the innovations that are changing outcomes for millions of children so they can grow into healthy adults. The ability to understand what's possible in healthcare and where the new frontier is headed impacts all of us. Every episode, I talk to some of the world's top researchers about how their work is revolutionizing the future of pediatrics and what that means for children and their families. I also talk to parents and patients who've dealt with unexpected medical challenges. Their stories offer a glimpse into how cutting-edge science is transforming the landscape of healthcare. We're beginning the season with an episode about Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. There are a lot of misperceptions about what ASD is and what it means to live with it, even though, according to the CDC, about 1 in 44 people in the United States have ASD. That is, of course, a significant number of people. And there are still huge strides to make in diagnosing and caring for ASD. Later on, we'll talk to two doctors who are making progress in both of those areas. But first, I want to properly introduce you to Dawn Denty, who you heard at the very beginning of this episode. My name is Dawn, and I have two boys. I have Thomas, who is 12, and Nathan is 8. Dawn's two boys both have autism spectrum disorder. She and her husband had a lot to learn about ASD when their older son, Thomas, was diagnosed. And a few years later, they went through a similar experience when their other son, Nathan, started showing signs of ASD. Here's Dawn to tell you the story in her own words. When Thomas was maybe between two and three, we noticed that he wasn't talking. He wasn't producing any words. He would babble, but he wasn't coming up with any true words. And then we decided to call in early intervention and they came and evaluated him and they said that he had um, speech delay and communication delay. Nathan was a little more challenging. So when Nathan was born, everything is going well. He was very vocal as a baby, lots of babbling, lots of noises, much more so than Thomas. So we didn't think anything of it. And then again, at that like age three mark, you can see even when we look at our home videos, how everything changes. It's almost like you wake up one morning and a switch has been thrown. He's no longer doing eye contact. He's still just babbling. He's not getting any words out. So I started to panic a little. And I remember talking to Thomas's doctor at Boston Children's Dr. Wilkinson has been amazing for our family. And I contacted her directly so we were able to get Nathan diagnosed a little bit quicker and then again be able to get him more services after that. But Nathan's completely nonverbal, so it's a little more going on for him. Nathan works a lot on doing a schedule and being able to dress himself. We try to teach him how to make some of their own foods and things so that they they will have life skills. Thomas is 
brilliant in his own way. He is like a math whiz. He writes beautifully. He does puzzles. It's just that social piece. He's going to go to college. He's going to have a job. He's going to learn how to communicate with people and how to navigate his own issues. Nate, hopefully, is going to um, continue to learn how to communicate and get his feelings across. And I hope my goal for him someday is to be able to perhaps live in an assisted living facility of some sort and be able to be independent. I mean, I think that's all any parent wants. Dawn, like all parents, wants to see her children thrive. And as we heard from Dawn's experience, parents often have to travel a long, confusing path before finally understanding that their child has ASD. That's in part because there isn't a standard test that identifies autism spectrum disorder. Currently, autism is diagnosed based on a doctor's observations of a child's behaviors. But what if doctors could use a quick, simple brain test to diagnose autism earlier? Would that change how doctors care for children with ASD? And could it ultimately change how kids with ASD are able to interact, learn, and play? To get a better understanding of autism and the challenges around diagnosing it, I spoke with Dr. Charles Nelson, Director of Research in the Division of Developmental Medicine at Boston Children's. Dr. Nelson has been working on finding a biomarker for autism. It could lead to an earlier and more accurate diagnosis. Biomarker is short for biological marker, and it's an indicator that can be accurately and reproducibly measured. In his lab, Dr. Nelson is studying the use of electroencephalograms, or EEGs, and he's using those to diagnose children as young as three months with autism spectrum disorder. So I'm Charles Nelson. I'm a professor of pediatrics at Boston Children's and Harvard Medical School, and I'm a developmental cognitive neuroscientist, which means in English, I study early brain development, and I try to relate changes in brain development to changes in behavioral development. Wonderful. So we know that you have a lab, the Nelson Lab at Boston Children's. Could you tell us a little bit about what your lab works on and what some of the findings have been that maybe you're most excited about? So what we'll talk about today is our new work in early identification of autism, because the hope is rather than waiting until kids are two or three or four years of age and they have a diagnosis of autism, we can identify kids in the first half year of life and then try to intervene and in a sense, maybe even prevent autism from developing. So when doctors are trying to make an ASD diagnosis, what kind of indicators are they looking for? So it turns out parents are pretty good observers. And when parents start noticing things like their child is not interested in making eye contact, their child doesn't turn when you call their name. These are things that happen before a year of age often, that their child has very little interest in social interactions, that they're much happier dealing with non-social things than social things. Those are some of the warning signs. Now, by no means does it mean that if a child does those things, they're going to have autism. It is simply something that they need to bring to the attention of their pediatrician. I think what often happens is that Sadly, in the United States, mostly because of access to health care or good health care, the average age of diagnosis is stubbornly still around four years of age. But in major metropolitan areas, where there are major medical centers, it's not uncommon to make a diagnosis by two, sometimes even before two. There are very rare cases where a diagnosis can be made at a year, but they're, again, they're very rare. Now, when the diagnosis is made, 
all that the parent hears is their child has autism. And they are, in many states, immediately referred to early intervention services. And that varies also by state. But those services are usually designed along the lines of what's referred to as applied behavior analysis, where they're trying to shape the child's behavior, get them more interested in looking at the eyes, get them more interested in talking, get them more interested in in social relatedness. And that's what these interventions are designed to do. Yes, I think that really helps us understand that there is a huge behavioral component and a reliance on observation. And even if a parent is observing these uh, characteristics, to know then that this is something that I should signal to my pediatrician. And it also makes me think about, you know, the importance of the regular checkpoints in pediatric care. Right now, the only way to diagnose autism is it's a behavioral phenotype and it's diagnosed based on behavior. And I think the real question is, can we get to the point of developing what will many of us call a biomarker that would be more objective? And in fact, the National Institutes of Health for now more than seven years has funded a large group of investigators led by Dr. Jamie McPartland at Yale to search for biomarkers for autism, including recording the brain's electrical activity or maybe even eye movements, how babies move their eyes. And I think the hope there is that if we have a more objective readout, one that's not influenced by behavioral heterogeneity, It'll be easier to make a diagnosis, more objective to make a diagnosis, and one that can be done earlier and earlier in life. And do you think that's something, ideally, that becomes embedded in the healthy baby milestones that we typically see? So there appear to be multiple ways to develop autism. That is risk factors. And we don't understand very much about this. So here's an example. Right now, the prevalence of autism in the general population varies from year to year. You know, one in 44, one in 54, something like that. But we do know that if a baby has an older sibling with autism, their chances go to one in five. So simply having an older sib dramatically increases the risk. Similarly, if there are other neurodevelopmental disorders in a family like Fragile X, that confers greater risk. But we've also found environmental risk. We have recently learned that in a large cohort of children we've been studying for years now who are growing up in very poor homes with limited resources that are highly stressed, the prevalence of autism could be as high as 10%. And so That begs the question of, is there a whole different segment of the population out there that we've been ignoring? And they tend to be mostly kids growing up in low-resource homes. For example, the families are very, very stressed. And the question is, are these children at a greater risk for developing autism? We can explain about 15 to 20% of the cases with genetics, but these are usually rare single gene disorders. Like, again, Fragile X might be an example. Uh, But... The rest of the cases, we just don't know. We just know that there are risk factors for that. So from a prevention strategy, we want to identify the populations at risk and and figure out how early they're showing signs of this disorder. For us, ideally, we would bypass behavior completely because behavior is sort of unpredictable and, and variable. So we want to go directly to the brain to see if we can find evidence in the brain, which always comes, changes in brain always precede changes in behavior that wind up being reliable biomarkers or readouts of kids who will eventually develop autism. Right now, we're not able to bypass the behavioral element, right? Right now, 
there are ways of bypassing behavior, which is to record the brain activity directly. It's just not part of standard clinical care. Uh, and it's not something that the average pediatrician will do in the office, but we're hoping that's where we're going to get over the next five to 10 years. Now, the work that we do using EEG or the brain's electrical activity is not yet ready for prime time. That's where we hope to go. That's why we're doing this in a primary care clinic. And maybe in five years, it will be. Uh, And maybe it'll be something that in five minutes, we can record a baby's brain activity and we'll be able to say, this child has a 90% chance of developing autism three years from now. Because the work we're doing starts at three months of age. And so what we want to know is, do we see patterns of brain activity as early as three months of age that tell us there's something about this that makes us think three years from now or two years from now, this child could wind up looking like they have autism? I am excited to move on to neuroimaging. But before we get there, I want to know a little bit more about why it's so important to diagnose ASD as early as possible. Why it's important to get those interventions early? Yeah, I think like many things in uh, psychology and medicine, the earlier you can identify something, the better. And the reason in the case of autism is the greater brain plasticity. And every adult listening to this is well aware that as we get older, we lose brain plasticity. Just try learning another language when you're 30 or trying to pick up a sport or, or an instrument or something like that. So although our brains remain plastic in some ways throughout the lifespan, the reality is that it's maximally plastic in the first several years of life. And that's why it's so important to make this diagnosis early and to get early intervention services. So now when we consider that earlier is better, I'd love to talk a little bit about how your lab and and your field broadly are leveraging neuroimaging to help us pay earlier instead of paying more later. You know, kids have to be at a certain point in development to show signs of autism, right? Generally, it's often not till a year. That's when language is starting to come online and language is a big part of autism. So we thought, well, what if we bypass behavior entirely and look directly at the brain? And the reason for that is that we know that changes in the brain always come before changes in behavior. So then it begged the question of what could we look at in brain? So that's led others to look at functional neuroimaging. And the two types that people have used there, one is EEG. So we're all familiar with this. If you place these little sensors on top of the the head, you can listen in on the brain's electrical activity. So just think of the millions and millions of neurons or brain cells you have that are communicating with other brain cells. Any given neuron has dozens and dozens of connections with other neurons. Those create little electrical currents that reflect circuits in the brain that we can record simply by placing sensors on the top of the head. EEG can look at the entire brain. uh, And as a result, we can, using a lot of fancy mathematics and tools from the computer science, we can start to use EEG to infer what areas of the brain are most active, what circuits seem to be developing at what ages, and in a sense, tell us Are we seeing patterns of brain activity that are concerning, that look different than what we would see in a child who didn't develop autism or or who won't develop autism? The beauty of EEG is it can be done at birth and the same technique can be done throughout the lifespan. So if you want to track the development of, of children from birth on, you're using exactly the same tool. 
Yet another advantage of EEG is it's relatively inexpensive. Whereas an MRI scan might be $1,000 or $2,000, an EEG system, it costs you $100,000 to buy and each session costs, you know, a couple of dollars, something like that. And that sounds important based on what you said about resource-strapped parents and the prevalence of ASD. Precisely. And so when we think about recording all of this brain activity and monitoring the electrical, I guess, circuitry of our brains, you mentioned, you know, with some fancy math and some computer science, I would love to know a little bit more about how you build the models that help us understand the data that you get from EEGs. Right. I I think many people are familiar with EEG. They see a bunch of squiggly lines and, you know, those squiggly lines represent the brain's electrical activity. And conventionally, what we could do is we know that these squiggly lines have different frequencies. Some are very slow, some are faster. So when you're falling asleep at night, your EEG is very slow. Um, But if you're really actively mentally engaged, it's much faster. So we can decompose this complicated signal into different frequencies, uh, alpha, beta, gamma, theta, things like that, terms that might be familiar to some people. However, we can't just trust our eye to look at these things and look for differences. So what we've started to do in earnest over the last decade or so is team with people in computer science and, and sometimes engineering and say, we're going to feed you billions of bits of data. So we're recording brain activity every two or three or four milliseconds from 120 locations on your head for five or 10 or 15 minutes at a time. So there's a lot of data there. We feed it into the computer and we ask for the computer to identify patterns of that we can't see by eye. And what we'll do is we'll say, we have a group of babies at high risk. They have a family history of autism. They have an older sibling with autism or low risk. Computer doesn't know who's at high risk and who does at low risk. All they know is you're feeding me a lot of data. And what we want the computer to do is to look for features in the EEG that can separate out the high from the low risk. Now, the next part, in our early work, we did that very quite successfully. We could show that certainly by nine months of age, maybe even earlier, we could say that's the high risk group, that's the low risk group. But to really make a diagnosis, you need to follow kids long enough so that they actually get a diagnosis of autism, which makes this work very expensive and lengthy because we have to wait for kids to grow up until at least three years of age. So we've now done this several times. So we have a group of babies at high risk and a group of babies at low risk. We start seeing them at three months and we follow them until they're three years of age. Now with the computer is we feed three sources of data to them. They all get EEG, One group is low risk who don't develop autism. One group is high risk who don't develop autism. And one group is high risk who do develop autism. We want to know how early in life the computer says, hey, wait a minute, I'm seeing patterns that distinguish those three groups. And what we've shown in a series of papers now is that by three months of age, we can reliably identify patterns in the EEG that are associated with kids who at the age of three meet criteria for autism. Now, what we cannot do yet is do this at the level of the individual. So I can't say to a mom or dad, I can do this test at three months and tell you if Johnny or Susie is going to develop autism three years later. We're still working at the level of the 
group. And the reason is it's a noisy signal. So we have to build better computer models to really reduce the noise and identify the signal. And that's the hope of this new project, that we'll get to the point where we will be able to work at the level of the individual, much like a blood test works for different medical conditions. This has been so informative. Thank you. Those are great questions. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure. Thanks. Dr. Nelson's work using EEGs is a huge step towards diagnosing autism spectrum disorder earlier. One day in the near future, clinics could be equipped with the technology to make reliable, on-the-spot autism predictions in infants. To get an idea of what happens after a kid is diagnosed with ASD, I talked to Dr. April Levin and Dr. Carol Wilkinson, who both conduct research at Boston Children's studying how the brain works in children who have autism. They helped me break down the role that early intervention plays in reducing the more challenging symptoms of ASD. Dr. Levin and Wilkinson focus specifically on applied behavior analysis. It's a form of therapy that focuses on how different behaviors work in real situations. The goal of this therapy is to increase helpful behaviors and minimize those that may be harmful or affect a child's ability to learn. The doctors also told me about some of their recent groundbreaking findings and the implications they have on the future of autism care beyond applied behavior analysis. Hi, welcome to Breakthrough. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. So to start off, I'd like to talk a little bit about the care you typically provide for children with ASD. Can you explain what applied behavior analysis is? Most of the behavioral therapies are really individualized to each child, partly because autism is so unique for each child, right? So the challenges that each child has is going to look a little bit different. And therefore, the um, treatment and the sort of behavioral plan is going to be different. And really the goal, I think, a lot of the times for therapy there is gaining skills that will help the child learn, communicate, And the ultimate goal is to live happily with full independence. Unfortunately, a good percentage of kids that are diagnosed, even when they're diagnosed early, like under two years of age, and get all of these therapies, don't make a lot of progress and are not able to live independently. They need a lot of support. And so the goals of the interventions are really to help children gain as much development and live as independently as possible. So for the littlest kids, a lot of the times kids with autism are having trouble learning. You might be like, why would a um, lack of interest in social interaction be a problem? Right. And part of it is because usually when we are little, we soak in the environment. We are taking in all of these cues. We see someone looking out the window and we go, Oh, what's going on out the window? Or mom picks up something and says the, you know, the name of the toy. Oh, look at that ball. And we're like, Oh, hmm, that started with a b sound. And that's how we like naturally learn. The challenge we think for a lot of kids with autism, not all, because some kids are hyperverbal and learn to like know how to read and seem to pick it up super, super naturally, but there's a huge other group that doesn't pick up on that. And we think part of it is that like that they don't 
they're not picking up on the saliency of the interactions around them. And it's not like easily just incorporated into their learning. And so the intensiveness of those early therapies are around sort of practicing learning to take in the environment. And that's why it can sometimes be a little repetitive because they need that repetition to sort of start putting those pieces together to then learn to talk or learn to communicate with pictures or other ways. And those are sort of building blocks that allows them to later on, you know, build on that and, and be in a classroom with other kids and, you know, live as, as independently as they can. So that's sort of like the early on therapy looks totally different. I would say in a middle schooler who doesn't have a language impairment doesn't have an intellectual impairment. We're talking about very different things in that category, which is kind of confusing, I would say. If Dr. Levin, if you could help the audience think about this, when we talk about sensory input, executive function, and what your kind of what your prefrontal cortex is doing as you're moving through the day. I mean, I think all middle schoolers need executive function. Adults, <laughs> myself included, um, we can struggle with those things. And so I'd love for people to get an understanding of what that center is, like what's happening, what it does. You know, I think of this as sort of the balance between what we call bottom up and top down thought. So bottom up is kind of the incoming sensory information. For example, if someone holds your hand, you get uh, a sensation in what we call the peripheral nerves, the nerve endings in the in the skin, and that sends a message through the spinal cord and up to the brain. And so, the brain then takes a lot of steps to modulate that incoming information. So, and that's sort of the top down sending a message back to say, "I'm going to pay attention to that, or I'm not going to pay attention to it." And so one of the things that we think is different in a lot of people with autism is that that balance between the bottom-up and top-down information processing is different. You know, on the one hand, we want our sensory systems to be very accurate. We want them to give us an accurate representation of what was that touch or what was that sound or what was that thing I just saw. But on the other hand, if we took everything at face value, it would be completely overwhelming. And so part of the job of many parts of our brain, but the frontal lobe in particular, is to uh, decide what am I going to pay attention to and what am I going to ignore? So for example, if I'm sitting at a table in a restaurant and someone's whispering at the table next to me, if I were to just absorb that information naturally as it comes in, it wouldn't sound very loud. I would barely be able to hear it above all of the other noise in the restaurant. But if I think that that person is whispering about me, then my brain sort of tunes into that and drowns out the other things. At the same time, you know, if I am having a conversation with a friend and the refrigerator is humming in the background, then I would tune that information out. The refrigerator is not very important, even if it's loud. In some people with autism, that becomes really challenging to do. And so 
they sometimes feel so overwhelmed by all of that incoming information that it's hard to decide what's important and what to pay attention to. And you can imagine that impacts how you go about everything you do during your waking hours, all day, every day, and probably during sleep as well. If your brain is not tuning out information correctly and is too easily woken up by things that really aren't that important while you're trying to sleep. That's something that I did not think about, but that does make a lot of sense. I want to pull in on this hypersensitivity, and I'd like for you to tell me a little bit more about some of the latest work that you all have been doing at the Autism Spectrum Center. And I'd like you to speak about uh, a recent study that looked at toddlers who were sensitive or maybe more sensitive to their language environments. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So one of the studies that we're doing here at Boston Children's is to try to understand how children, including children with autism, process sensory information. And so the way that that study is set up, we bring in three and four-year-old children. We specifically chose that age in some ways because that's one of the hardest ages to study. Children who are three and four years old, especially ones with autism, a lot of times can't yet really reliably tell us what they're feeling. And so that's also the group where it's most important to be able to measure that somehow. And so we bring in children with their parents and we take them through a whole set of tests to try to understand how they process sensory information. So first, we just ask the parents a bunch of questions about what they see their child doing and what types of behaviors they're using to try to figure out how a child is processing sensory information. And we ask about things like, you know, does your child seem bothered by walking barefoot on the grass or walking barefoot in the sand? Or is your child somebody who needs the tags cut out of all of his clothes or who loves to stare at a spinning fan? Or is your child somebody who seems to be able to hear a motorcycle that's you know miles and miles away that nobody else can hear? but also seems very bothered by the sound of a toilet flushing in a public bathroom. So we ask all of these questions to parents to try to get a sense of a child's behavior. Then we move to a more direct observation of the child's behavior. So we actually expose them to different environmental stimuli. And it's actually a really fun test. So we give them, you know, lots of bright and shiny objects that move around and things that make different sounds and things that, you know, feel different ways on the hands, like balls that are squishy or things that have interesting sensations. And we see how children respond to to all of those things based on a direct observation. And, and usually that matches pretty well with what parents see. Then we move to the objective measurements. So we have this EEG cap, which is just these saline and baby shampoo soaked sponges. It's 128 of them actually, all tied onto a big net. And 
we put the net on the children's head. Those electrodes allow us to measure brain waves. And so we can tell how a child's brain is responding to different stimuli in the environment. And so we pay, play different sounds uh, at different levels of loudness. We repeat sounds over time because usually children should habituate to sounds. They should get used to sounds so their brain waves shouldn't be as strong to a second and third sound as they were to the first sound. In young children, so three and four-year-olds with autism, their brains respond much more strongly to loud sounds than the brains of children who don't have autism respond to those same loud sounds. We can start to develop more objective measures of how kids' brains are responding to these things. And then we can look at how is that different in children with autism compared to children who are typically developing or don't have autism or children with other neurodevelopmental conditions like ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or anxiety. We can look at all of that and see how the brain processes information differently. The other thing that we can start to do because autism is so heterogeneous and there are so many different ways that the brain can work in autism is to try to identify biologically-based subgroups, which is really important as we're trying to think about how to individualize treatments. We can start to develop different categories of brain function in response to these sensory stimuli and start to think about how we can group kids in more clinically meaningful ways rather than just saying that they all have this particular behavior. And I think that will be really helpful for more personalized and individualized medicine moving forward. Really what we are aiming for is identifying children that would benefit from early intervention to help them make progress or to prevent additional challenges that can stem from these challenges with social communication or challenges with sensory processing or challenges with executive, all of these things, right? And so the great thing about Dr. Levin's study that's, that's focused on sensory processing is that it's not really about sort of identifying someone that is going to have autism. It's identifying someone who's going to have significant challenges with sensory processing that could impact the way that they develop, the way that they interact with the world, the way that they learn from the world. And if we can identify that, then maybe we can change the environment or help their brain process that information better so that they don't have those challenges or those challenges with the environment and the interactions with others and, you know, sort of the need to focus on one thing rather than taking enough. All of those things might be diminished and allow them to make more progress. And I think what you've just described is, is the most neuroinclusive model, right, that allows us to capture who, regardless of what bucket or category we may, whether accurately or inaccurately, put you in, who could benefit from early intervention and how can I adjust either your processing or your environment to make this an experience that gives you both, you know, the healthy outcomes and the, the life that all parents want for their kids. Right. 
And it guides the intervention too, right? So if we find that certain kids have an extreme response to sounds or certain things, then that is a direct guide to the early intervention that maybe that's something to focus on rather than something else that's on our usual like autism list. (laughs) Wow. Drs. Levin and Wilkinson, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Sakia. It was really great chatting. Thanks for having us. Dr. Levin and Dr. Wilkinson's work studying how children with autism perceive sensory input could create huge gains in the approach to caring for ASD. Their work, along with Dr. Nelson's, continues to open up new possibilities. This gives doctors more tools to diagnose and address ASD symptoms earlier in a young person's life. Timing is everything when it comes to development trajectories for kids with ASD, and this research is ensuring that no time is lost. One day, they may even be able to diagnose autism before patients begin showing any symptoms. And that could have a promising impact on families affected by ASD, families like Dawn Dente's. I mean, I think that's all any parent wants for their kids. We want them to be happy, healthy. We want them to be independent. We want them to grow and learn. So I hope with everything that we're giving them that that's gonna happen and we're just gonna continue to grow. Thanks for listening. Breakthrough is a production of Boston Children's. On our next episode, we'll talk to a husband and wife team who are working on creating a vaccine that goes far beyond treating a virus. The antibodies would bind to, in this case, fentanyl. So if fentanyl can't cross into the brain, it can't suppress breathing and cause overdose. And so that's the big idea. That's right. Doctors may someday be able to treat addiction with a vaccine. Join us next time on Breakthrough to learn how vaccines can be used in ways we never thought possible. If you enjoyed this episode of Breakthrough, be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time.